This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Womenly Shapers, now out in paperback. If you like book chat, you might like our newsletter, Further Reading. You can find it at furtherreading.substack.com. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. This is a conversation with one of my very favourite writers, Curtis Sittenfeld, to celebrate the publication of the hotly anticipated new novel Rodham, a fictionalised account of the life of Hillary Clinton and what could have happened if she'd broken up with Bill and gone on to become president. Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld is published by Doubleday and it's available in ebook and audio on May the 19th and it's available to pre-order in hardback and the hardback's coming in July. Curtis and I talked about short stories, first ladies, literary audacity and borrowing from Jane Austen. Firstly, I want to tell you how much I adored Rodham and how captivating and immersive I found it. Also, weirdly, it was like it was what I was reading right when everything sort of shut oh. And so I felt like I was sort of in this very, very specific world. Did you always know that Rodham was sort of a novel that was inside you and, and had to come out? Or did you start kind of experimenting and exploring with that voice and think you had more to say? I would say definitely the latter. So I I did not think that, that there was a Hillary novel inside me all this time. Um, and so editors from the American Esquire, you know, like the American version of Esquire magazine, reached out to me in early 2016. And said, do you want to write a story from the perspective of Hillary Clinton when she's being nominated, um, you know, to be the sort of presidential, the, the Democratic presidential candidate? And, and so it, it basically fell in my lap. And I don't, I don't think that that's a story I would have written on my own. And, and I even had reservations about accepting the assignment, but then I thought, oh, why not? So it ran, um, you know, probably five months before the American election when things, you know, it was predicted that she would win. And that story is very straightforward. Like it, it never names her, but it's told in the first person and the kind of facts that it, um, like it, you know, there's <clears throat> stuff is made up about a way that she interacts with a journalist, but the sort of you know, it talks about countries she visited as secretary of state or like having a vegan husband or things like that. So I, I did have that experience of, you know, writing from her perspective, which in itself felt kind of radical because I had declined invitations to write essays about her. And I thought, I don't have anything to say about Hillary Clinton that hasn't already been said at some point in the last, you know, almost 30 years. But then I thought, when it was instead, when the question was not like, what do people think of Hillary, but what does Hillary think of people, then then it turned out I had a lot to say. So, you know, that was part of, I think, what made me write it. And then also I had this kind of slow realization that I, I feel like it, it almost coalesced more after the election than before, that 
for a lot of American school children, they know who Hillary is, they knew who she was, they knew she was running for president, but they actually didn't know who Bill Clinton was. They didn't know that he was Hillary's husband and they didn't know that, that he had been you know, president and had all this baggage associated with him. So I think it was kind of the fact of, of having written the story combined with that realization about like, you know, or, and sort of wondering, well, what if, what would it be like if American adults had the same perspective of Hillary as separate from Bill that <laughs> that children do. The experience of reading that story kind of post me too, because I guess I was, I when I I was growing up, I think I was twelve, thirteen ish when, um, and you know I heard it kind of at a remove. I imagine that the way it was reported yeah. in the UK was a little different, and it wasn't quite so full on, you know, and it felt pretty full on here, but sort of. I don't know if it kind of sounded glamorous and, and scandalous to, for shame, the treatment of, of women and the, you know, misogyny and the reporting and the sort of, you know, the casual disregard for sort of a, you know, a woman's experience. And it, you know, when I heard those first stories when I was 12, I wasn't thinking, how dare they say that about these people? Right, um, right, and right. obviously, yeah. you know, you're coming to it again and you realise, or I realised just how much I was sort of, internalized from that time and we hadn't questioned enough yeah I feel the same way I mean I I I think I had this sort of um you know eye-opening experience with regard to Hillary when in 2007 I read her first memoir living history um because I was writing American Wife. And so and American Wife is loosely based on Laura Bush. So I was just kind of reading Living History. Just I just thought, you know, she Hillary lived in the White House recently. She was first lady. Like that was my my motive. And when I read it, I did think, because I mean I'm definitely a Democrat. You know, I I guess the when Bill Clinton was first elected, I couldn't vote, but I'm sure I voted for him, you know, this second time he ran for president. But I did I had really liked them when they first kind of came on the scene in 1991-92 and then my enthusiasm for both of them waned where it just felt like there was scandal after scandal while they were in the White House and when I read Living History which was you know eight years or seven or eight years after they'd left the White House I, I did have this moment of thinking to myself why do I see them almost as the same person or you know like and also there's all these all these um kind of rumors or um it's not like kind of like stereotypes that affix themselves to her or like kind of talking points that don't really necessarily have that much to do with like the way she spent most of her time over like the decades and um you know the the issues that she's focused on and and she's i mean i think she's a very substantive smart serious person and and like somehow we just end up talking about her hair all the time and it's it's a little bit preposterous there's something so weird isn't there about how in the that the flattening you know if you're a woman the only thing worse than being someone who is sort of sexualized is someone who is not sexualized you know that <laughs> yeah you only yeah. get to be one or the other and so that kind of like well you know if she's like not one of the hot women who bill is cheating on her with then she must be the shrew and it's so yeah. overwhelming and you know and unfair but i think in real life and you know what I took away from your book was it's that making the love interest sort of becomes the hero and I'm wondering whether you remember reading any books kind of growing up or in general where there's a you know someone who's kind of in there as the the partner of the hero and you think oh I'd like to give them more of a voice and you know I'd like someone to tell their story as a main narrative. I mean I, I do think that there's something that's almost a little bit more interesting like I don't think, well, okay, so, so, you know, my book American Wife is written from the perspective of a first lady. And so I think <clears throat> it's fair that some people have said to me, like, what's your obsession with first ladies? And I, I don't really think I have an obsession with first ladies. Like, I, I think if Hillary 
I don't think of her as primarily a first lady, even though she was one. You know, I think of her as as a presidential candidate or secretary of state. I mean, like I could make a case for that a person who's in the orbit of a very famous person in some ways is more interesting to me than a very famous person um, because it's almost like, I don't know, like if you're the very famous person, everything is, you know, sort of swirling around you, you are the sun. And if you're, if you're just like, you, you, it's almost like you can have this invisibility. If you're, if you're not in the limelight directly, you can have this invisibility or kind of, you know, like you're sort of famous, but you're sort of a regular person or you're, and it's, that weirdness is actually interesting to me in some ways more interesting than a person who kind of seeks out their own fame to go to the books um are you reading much in these times are you kind of reaching the books as a comfort or finding it harder to concentrate what are you reading at the moment well I think because you know like you um books (laughs) books are sort of it's almost like my hobby and my job. Um, and so, so I am always reading, you know, like, like I just was in conversation with the writer. Um, like I just did a sort of online event. It was of course supposed to be an in-person event and got um, adjusted, but with um, the writer, Emily Gould, who had written the book, Perfect Tunes. Is that on your radar? Yes. Oh, Emily Gould, who runs, is it Emily books? Yeah. And yeah, she famously yeah. wrote a memoir and she wrote this yeah. really incredible essay about money that I think about all the time about what it's like to sort of get this huge advance and think it's going to change your life as a writer. And then. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's really interesting And in her, her, the new book, it's about a young woman. Um, I'm trying to think of how to describe it without any spoilers who you know, is like, she wants to be a musician and songwriter and she's talented. And then she, her career as it's beginning gets kind of interrupted. And and then it sort of follows her over 15 years in this interesting way. So it's, and it's a really, it's like a really smart book and a really readable book. So I just read that. I read, Wait, uh, what's um, it called? Oh, sorry. It's called Perfect Tunes. Perfect Tunes. Yeah. And I, I, I've actually seen, I love the UK cover. I've seen the UK cover online somewhere. I am about to start reading the new Lily King book. Do you know, I think it's called, I feel like I, I mix up this title, but I think it's called Writers and Lovers. Is that on your, maybe it's called Lovers and Writers. I don't know her, but that's a great, great title. She, she wrote Euph- Euphoria. That's like a sort of um, fictionalized Margaret Mead story. She's a real. It's a, so basically, several writers have recommended her new book to me, which I think is about a young woman, um, and I think it maybe takes place like twenty or thirty years ago, who's like a waitress becoming a writer, and and supposedly the details of being a writer are very good. Um, I still haven't read, but it's at the top of my list. Um, Trust Exercise by Susan Choi. Have you read that one? I keep hearing about it. Yeah, people same, same. I uh, it's on my it's on my bookshelf. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't only read new stuff, but but you know, obviously, when when everybody's talking about something new, it's kind of intriguing. And often, I think if you're getting sent a lot of stuff, it ends up rising to the top, doesn't it? You're yeah, just sort of piles and yeah. piles and piles. I see the piles behind you, literally. <laughs> And this is just a room. It's, so this, it's not even a flat anymore. It's just books. Um, can you remember the first book you read that felt like your own discovery? That was sort of, it. you know, when you have that feeling when you think this is just for me. It's funny. I remember reading in high school. Um, my The first time I read a short story in The New Yorker. And it was by Deborah Eisenberg. and And it was about two teenage girls or maybe maybe one of them was like an adult looking back on being a teenage girl and I and I I you know my parents had always subscribed to the New Yorker and I had you know looked at the covers and looked at the cartoons and I think I thought oh like (laughs) that's what's in here that's that's all the stuff that's like not the imagery but it's the words and and I I was kind of riveted and and I think um you know, and, and I still remember a few other New Yorker stories that I read very, very early on, including there was one by um, Catherine Weber uh, and just kind of, 
you know, like, like it felt like this window into adulthood or into the adult perspective and that um, it just was very intriguing to me. I think what's so exciting is when you first read a story when at a formative time, when there's some ambiguity and it doesn't have a, and that's the end, but it's just, yeah, there's a yeah. messiness to it that feels very adult and thrilling. Yeah, I think that that is true, that it was sort of like, like, what am I supposed to take away from this? And, and not being sure made it more rather than less interesting. Are you from a, a family of readers? Was everyone in the house reading the fiction in The New Yorker? Were there sort of books on the, the shelf that you'd pull out and pick up? So it's funny, that's a, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think the short answer is yes, in the sense that there were lots of um books in my house growing up and you know when I was I'm one of four siblings and when I was you know uh, like eight or nine or ten or whatever like um my parents would read aloud and we read to our whole family we read like the Laura Ingalls Wilder books or things like that um and there's my mother was an art history teacher and so we have we always had lots of like sort of coffee table art books um but actually i would say that i am by far the biggest reader in my family so so i think that like i don't i don't think that anyone else routinely ever read the fiction in the new yorker or you know like they might on occasion but that's not the default and and yeah, I don't. I think my mother, you know, my mother is usually reading some book. I think that she, I would say she reads more nonfiction than fiction. Um, I mean, my dad, I would almost say, is more of a magazine reader. And so now in adulthood, my siblings, um, like one of my sisters reads, she listens to the audio of a ton of essay collections by female celebrities <laughs> that's like her go-to one of my other sisters i would i mean they're both my i would consider the members of my family very intelligent my other sister i would say she reads maybe one or two books a year i mean she works very long hours she reads a ton of like newspaper articles like there's some people i know where i kind of joke that like they don't read a novel unless i write <laughs> um oh but that's and, and great I, though you'd rather have that than the other way around you mean that's that's true that's and true. you can truly say you know if you read one novel this year <laughs> i know that's true or one novel in this three-year stretch um so it's not I don't know, like, like, I wouldn't say that we were a sort of super, super, I, this, this is a really long answer that I'm giving you, but I wouldn't say, like, like, I think my family is very engaged in the world. And, you know, like, sometimes, maybe we subscribe to magazines like Vanity Fair, or People, or Newsweek, or Time, and we subscribe to a lot of magazines. And at times, when a magazine arrived in the mail, we would literally physically fight over it. So, so it's like, there's a, I think my family has always had this great interest in the world, but it's, we were not sitting around talking about Tolstoy, you know? You know, Laura Ingalls Wilder will, will more than do. I loved those stories. Um, yeah. Did, did they feel like a compelling American origin story? Did you find them kind of cozy or terrifying or boring or... I think, I think both, like, I think they're kind of cozy and terrifying. And I actually, I tried to read them to my kids and there was a scene very early on where Pa was, I'm trying to think of what the verb is. Like, it's not like butchering an animal. Like there's a more, um, it's a more euphemistic verb, but essentially butchering an animal. And like my, my kids basically were like, no, thank you. <laughs> so um, and I, I mean, I think they read a little bit on their own, but I, I think, I think my idea of motherhood was like, we will read every book in the series, you know, back to back. And, you know, you can't, you can't sort of force such things on, on your offspring. It's funny though, isn't it? Because the things I remember, like, you know, tapping the maple tree and making the mm -hmm. butter and making it a lovely golden color. Out of mm -hmm. I don't remember like, you know, bear wrestling an animal butchery. Yeah, yeah. Very selective yeah, memory. Yeah, I think there's a mix. There's a mix. And there's also, I mean, I think that the books, 
I guess, I guess the way to say it is like, there's more racism and like the, the, the commentary on race is like, it, it, it does, I mean, it's very safe to say it does not feel contemporary. I mean, as not, not that racism isn't itself contemporary, but, but it's like, you know, there's, there'll be sentences where I, I would think like, I do not want to read that sentence aloud to my child, or like, I don't want to give my child the sense that that's like appropriate language. That that worldview is sort of being presented without question in that context, yeah, in that setting yeah, is a bit jarring. Yeah, yeah, there's also, did you ever read um Caddy Woodlawn? It's very similar to Laura Ingalls Wilder. I have a vague, vague, vague memory. Although I think it's fiction, whereas I think Laura Ingalls Wilder is not fiction, or at least is not, it might be fiction, but it's not presented as fiction. You know, it's partly fictional. Yeah. Are there any books that you're kind of really excited to share with your children? Or is there anything that you have discovered through them and been pleasantly surprised by? I mean, there are definitely books, like I loved, did you ever read the Boxcar Children? There was, it was a series, but I only ever read the first one about these four siblings who lived in a like train car. Um, uh, so I, I remember reading that when my kids were younger. Um, I mean, certainly a lot of the picture books, like I, I loved Eloise. I, I liked most of Dr. Seuss. I read with one of my kids, I read from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frank Weiler. I read actually with one of my kids, I read, do you know, it's a YA book, um, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. Do you, is that on your, it, it became a movie. Oh, yes. called, I think called Dear Simon. It's, it's, so the premise is, it's these two boys who go to a high school in Atlanta. I mean, it's primarily told from the point of view of one boy whose name is Simon. And somehow, and the technology is like explained in the book, they end up emailing each other. I'm trying to remember, like Simon definitely doesn't know who he's emailing. And I can't remember if the person he's emailing knows who Simon is. I think he does, or maybe partway through he does. Anyway. But the, the boys both know that they are gay and that they go to the same high school. And so everywhere Simon goes, you know, during the day, he thinks like, is that my anonymous pen pal? And the emails themselves are in the book. And so it's essentially, it's like an epistolary novel, but it's just like really kind of romantic and funny and sweet and contemporary. And um, yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it's, and it's very... Uh, like you, you sort of feel as you're reading, you sort of feel like you're waiting to hear back from, <laughs> like they, uh, you know, to get the next email. So it has that kind of suspense. Probably isn't the right word, but just like if ever you've been impatient to hear from another person, it, it gives you that feeling vicariously. Oh well, to fangirl for a second, you know what I love so much about your books: the yearning is captured so <laughs> so beautifully. I don't know anyone else who writes. Yeah, when you really, really like feel it and you sort of, it inhabits your soul in the way that you think it's, you know, it is inhabiting their soul, that sort of longing and that. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a good compliment. I feel, I feel like it's like a good and slightly embarrassing compliment, but I'll <laughs> take it. It's mean of me to do that now because, you know, while well, I'm sort of looking at you because now you've got to work out what to do with, you know, with one's face <laughs> when one is. But um, all great books are about people trying to get something or someone they want and it's rare to be convinced of the wanting in that way yeah oh that's interesting that's a really interesting statement or insight I I do it's funny because when my short story collection came out two years ago um a fair number of people would say to me like I don't usually like short stories but I liked yours or like the thing that I don't like about short stories is that you kind of get invested in one and then it's over or like I never get invested in it and and then and some and again usually this was in the context of someone saying something nice like but that doesn't apply to you and and I would think to myself like if someone feels like my stories are different you know what what could it be I mean I I, I think a part of me of course thinks just you know read more short stories or like have you ever read Alice Monroe but I I actually think that it might be there's a there's like a pretty efficient or quickly presented vulnerability in the stories. And I, I do, I think not even on purpose, 
But I think some writers are almost like writing maybe again consciously or subconsciously in the hope that the reader will think that they the writer are like cool or have a good life or like have their act together and so it's to like and i i think i think i really try to write in such a way where it's like almost like saying i don't care what you think of me the writer i'm just trying to serve the story i suppose about the kind of to call it ventriloquism doesn't seem like it's a it sort of it captures the the fullness of it but i guess it makes a lot of sense that you can you know because I think that you've really got to put yourself aside and I would venture a suggestion that might not be true in a to you know as I speak for all writers um you sort of you start with yourself very much at the beginning you know in your first one's first book or one's first go at any kind of fiction and then you get as you get more and more confident you lose yourself and lose yourself and so that's when you can sort of adopt another voice and another person so convincingly that it has been someone who sort of actually you know existed and been and been in the world I mean I I agree with the bulk of what you're saying I think that um like I wouldn't necessarily say that it's an evolution where like the beginning writer you know writes in her own voice and then evolves into writing from someone else's voice I would almost say like I almost feel like it's a it's a choice because I do think there's some writers where I feel as if that writer you know over decades or over many books does write in the same voice pretty consistently and then other people mix it up and then some people sort of mix up the plot but maintain the voice and so I think there are different approaches but I I think that if I were always writing from the point of view of a sort of thinly veiled version of myself, I think that would be pretty boring for me to write and potentially boring for readers to read. You live your life in your life. You don't have to then sort of go to it. Like the mm-hmm. the joy of what, what you do is that you get to try on all kinds of lives. Are there any authors that have really struck you in terms of how how different their work is? Yeah, no, I, it's funny. I, th- I would have to think to answer that question of who sort of, you know, mixes it up. I mean, it's, it's a strange thing because on the one hand, with, again, with my short story collection, I feel like the sto- those stories are pretty uniform in terms of like sensibility or like the demographic of like, you know, it's mostly like educated white midwestern american women a lot of whom are kind of grumpy and i feel like 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 i almost felt like when i were younger um when i was younger i might have thrown in stories from like with really different settings or from really different perspectives character wise just to show that i could and and i when the when i was putting the book together i thought you know if you want a story that's not about from the perspective of like an educated grouchy white woman just read a different collection like there's plenty that are out there and I don't I don't need to put like science fiction in here or I don't need to just to show that I can you know or I don't need to like do something really formally experimental just to show that I can I mean it's like I could have done that if I wanted to but to, but to, to if I didn't naturally have the impulse that I didn't think I should so so I think there is this way of like sort of striking a balance between writing in a way that's organic to the writer and sort of also pushing yourself to try new things well I think about someone like Elizabeth Strouch and mm. I wouldn't say there's anything especially comfortable or cozy about her universes but you mm. could it would be very easy to say, well, these they everything feels very, very similar, but it's such a that absolute close reading, you know, or someone's taking a a microscope like under the grass and it's mm. it's sort of this tiny but in teeming universe full of different in the that you can have something that has that I guess a feeling of consistency, but there there's so much sort of eclecticism within that and I suppose it's the way we live isn't it and it's the the side effect I think of being a sort of an educated functioning person that the great great gulf between what is said and what is meant and what is felt ha 
That's funny. That that. <laughs> um, no, I think there is. Yeah, I think there. I think that. I think that that golf interests me a lot. And what I, what you're saying, I think also makes me think of um, of like Alice Monroe and also Tessa Hadley, where I feel like you don't you don't know what you'll get within a particular story or novel, but you you don't know what the plot will be, but then you can you kind of have a handle on what the sensibility will probably be you know I think of Tessa Hadley as the great polarizer because I joke that my dream novel is like two people looking at each other across a lawn and thinking about sex but maybe not having sex in real time (laughs) (laughs) give me a look when nothing happens that's all I want and I think that people either long for that I think I think we're in a I'm in a minority and other people no you know I I want something to happen (laughs) That is so funny. By the way, I have a recommendation for you. Um, my super close friend from graduate school is named Susanna Daniel, and she's written two novels. One is called Stiltsville, and the other one is called Sea Creatures. And I, based on that description of what you most look for, I, I think they might be very much in your wheelhouse. <laughs> um, yeah, Stiltsville and Sea Creatures. That's that's really funny. We'll be back to Curtis soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book that's even more precious than a diamond as big as the Ritz. This week, my steal is This is Big, How the Founder of Weight Watchers Changed the World and Me by Marisa Meltzer. Marisa, the author, was put on her first diet when she was five years old. When she read an obituary for Jean Nidetch, the legendary founder of Weight Watchers, she felt a moment of intense connection. This is Big is partly Marisa's memoir, partly Jean's biography, and entirely a wise, resonant, courageous, moving love letter to every single person who has ever cursed their complicated relationship with eating and their body. I devoured this. Marisa's voice is never anything less than compelling. She uses her great journalistic talent to strong effect. This is the thoughtful, nuanced, moving answer to anyone who has ever claimed the question of diet and exercise is an easy one. I gulped this down the first time around and I'm already longing to read it again. This is Big is published by Chateau and Windus and out now. Now, back to Curtis. I just read um, my first Sue Miller? No, is it Sue Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Monogamy. I think that when I was a teenager, I read a bunch of her books and was kind of fascinated. Like they have that sort of granular aspect of, you know, analyzing behavior and sort of being very interior in terms of, I mean, there's like external plots and there's like in, interior elements of like what people are thinking. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I think that that's exactly what a certain sort of teen want that. I think that's very, very appealing mm-hmm. to an obsessive mm-hmm. teenage mindset. Whereas people would be like, no, you want dinosaurs and spacemen Mm -hmm. i think this is true with tv and with books that in a way the the tv show or the writer kind of sets 
the reader or viewer's expectations. And so it's kind of like, you know, this is going to be very dramatic or this is not going to be very dramatic, but almost like the less that happens externally, the more, you know, two fingers brushing against each other are going to seem really exciting and suspenseful. And, but, you know, like, it's almost like if a bomb goes off, in the first scene, it might seem harder for two fingers brushing against each other to, to seem dramatic. But if like the whole, you know, book has been two people yearning for each other, then, then that can be like, oh my God. So here at the moment, everybody, I say everybody, everybody I follow on Twitter is obsessed with normal people. Of the I, 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 I knew what you were going to say. <laughs> and I feel as though that falls into that category. Have you read it or watched any of it? Uh, no, I haven't read normal people. I read, is it conversations with, with friends? Yes. Yeah. Which I liked a lot. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, like I, and I think I read maybe a story, like I feel pretty confident that I would like, any book she wrote I was zooming one of my sisters last night and we were talking about it and we were like oh you know quite tired let's go to bed and one of us mentioned something about like watching normal people and it was like another hour of us analyzing <laughs> that how many sisters do you have I've got five. Oh my goodness and were you all on the call four out of five well, no, five out of six was managed. One sister had to work late. Wait, so do you have any brothers? No, it's all, it's, all, all it's girls. It's six sisters. And what, what number are you? I'm, I'm the eldest. Oh. I'm, I'm Jane Bennett, which sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, eligible. Um, I can't believe you've not talked about eligible yet. How much did you care about Jane Austen as a, <laughs> as a reader growing up? Because, I, I mean, I think it's so so fantastic and so faithful I hope you take this as the compliment it is intended to be but I feel like it is as faithful as Clueless is to Emma and I think that is a very pure line so I read it for the first time when I was I think 16 um and loved it and so I I guess I don't know it's writing is such a strange thing because you know, writing is really something I do by myself. And I know that I'll eventually have an audience for my work. And I'm conscious of that. Like, it would be, you know, kind of disingenuous to say, like, I just, I just do it for my own hobby or what I you know, Who cares what anyone thinks? Like, I know it's I, like, I almost think of it as if I'm and but you should take this in the context of knowing like I'm not a good cook at all and I don't I almost never cook like I do the grocery shopping and my husband does the cooking but so I I almost feel like writing a book is like you know preparing for a dinner party and like I'm in the kitchen by myself all day and then everyone comes and it's, it's a sort of different experience to be getting it ready and like trying different things and and it's kind of like a private or solo experience and then there's like the public aspect of it and so like if I'm sitting in my office or sitting at my desk I I do feel like I can do whatever I want you know it's like it's almost like the way like a person might like dance in front of the mirror and um and then I need to kind of think about what I can live with when the pages that I've written you know, are going to be public. But I don't know, like if someone said, you're no Jane Austen, that that wouldn't really upset or offend me. Like I would think, of course, I'm no Jane Austen, <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and I just, I just feel like, you know, you could really, as a writer, second guess yourself to the point of like being immobilized in terms of wondering if what you're doing is going to be interpreted as you intended. And I think this is true for Eligible and for Rodham. Um, and I just, I think that it's just kind of crazy making to sort of not assume people's good faith interpretation, even though, I mean, there is obviously there's like lots of kind of public, public ugliness and ugly discourse out there. But I, but I think it's like, do you, you know, play to that or try to anticipate that? Or do you just say like, whatever I do, I'm going to get some criticism and I'm just going to kind of write the best book I can write and the book that really engages me. And I would say that that's what I do. It still kind of hits me in waves sometimes that it's like, 
no one expects you or anyone to like, you don't have to complete books. You're not aiming to write the book that means that no more books need to be written. It's just a perspective that people will enjoy and interpret and be moved by in a thousand different ways. And they're all going to be bringing themselves to that. Yeah. Well, it's, it also, I mean, so I, you know, don't have as many siblings as you do, but I do have three. And so I feel like when I was growing up, like sometimes if I was maybe in college or something, my family, the six of us would try to find a movie that we would want to go see around Christmas. And it was very hard to even find a movie that all six of us were willing to see. And then it was very rare if we did find one that there was a sort of consensus opinion on the quality of it. And so I just feel like, you know, of course, some people like my books. And of course, some people don't like there's there's no other possibility or like any any, you know, you could say the most beloved Hollywood star. And and it wouldn't be that hard to find people say like, I hate him or you know, I, I never liked her. Like it's people just have different opinions and that's OK. You know, with Eligible, and I'm so, so glad you did. And, you know, hundreds and thousands of us are so glad you did it. But to go to that story and you know rework it and revisit it and was it at any point did it kind of feel daunting so that like the esquire hillary short story um and i I think this is the only two times this has happened but um it sort of fell in my lap where two british editors reached out to me and said would you be interested in you know writing a contemporary version of pride and prejudice and and i think it's exactly what you're saying that sort of made it enticing to me which was feeling like I'm writing toward a happy ending and I'm kind of playing with this plot that exists but then I get to make it my own and it's this kind of it's making me use my brain in a different way and it's making me have a sort of combination of creativity but like homage or you know sort of like borrowing from this book I really like and I I think that I I felt all along um, like I'm just going to have fun with this and that this is an act of admiration. And if somebody chooses to interpret it differently from that, that's, that's okay. Like, I, I mean, I was certainly conscious of the fact that like, it's <laughs> because of copyright stuff, it's, it's legal for anyone to write their own Pride and Prejudice. And it, it was not as if the descendants of Jane Austen like tapped me for, <laughs> for this very special honor like it's it's almost just like you know I was just amusing myself and maybe maybe some other people but so I'm doing some ghostwriting at the moment and it's not quite the oh. same but it does mean that like I've got a I've not got to think of the story the story is there yeah. and I'm just kind of all I get to do is is tell it but that is the you know, the thrill and the fun bit and the challenge. And as you say, it's a different way to use your brain because that you're not using all that power, just kind of thinking, well, how? Yeah, I've actually, I've thought that I, like, I think I could have been a ghostwriter. And there's there's a lot of, I, like, do you know, I haven't read it yet, but do you know the, um, the Arielle Levy, um, who's a really respected writer for the New Yorker was the ghostwriter for Demi Moore's memoir. And people love the memoir. Wow. I have not read that and I would love to read yeah, it. I want to too. Yeah, I'm very curious. Because I was I've just finished doing the like the final copy edits for my first novel, which is out next year. And oh, um, congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. But my main fear which came to pass was like all the way through any time I've mentioned like a time I'm super super vague because I'm like oh I'm so so scared people will go for dinner in October and they'll come out and it's March (laughs) or um oh that's funny yeah yeah managing that is one of the more challenging parts of writing a novel like sometimes I use real calendars like I'll print out a calendar from like October 1997 or something and, and it, I'll, I'll think like, oh, this, you know, this has to go in this order just for some plot reason, but it's like impossible and like it's chronologically impossible. And there's even, there's a few things where I'll think like, ugh, like I hope, I hope nobody pays attention, but if they say that doesn't make sense, like the answer to that would be like, you are correct. That doesn't make sense. Because I'm just, I'm thinking about prep where I never, ever, ever question this, but like 
for Lee how kind of empty and jarring those weekends were where you know she really I think felt you know I thought reading it extra extra alone and I can imagine being in the position of sort of writing that hold on how many weekends have there been? When's Christmas? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I do. I look at real calendars to try, or like, because I also I think that's an example. Like sometimes people will say, like, oh, you should know all your characters' beliefs, or like there should be, you know, like you should have you should have all this knowledge of your characters, even if it's not on the page, because it'll inform how you depict them. And I feel sort of like I feel <laughs> feel that way actually about the calendar in your books like you should clearly know when things happen even if you're not saying it was you know March 18th or whatever. Going back to short stories I know you mentioned um Alice Munro and the New Yorker fiction have you read any short stories lately that you you love or or are there any writers who haven't written short form fiction that you're aware of and you'd love to read their short form fiction? Oh interesting interesting um I mean, there's, I'm reading a book, someone, a friend of mine gave me a book called Bobcat by a woman named Rebecca Lee, which I think is really, um, it's really good. And she, my friend couldn't believe that I had never heard of Rebecca Lee. And so, and so, and it's a writer, a writer friend. So I thought like, Ooh, that's a, that's always a good kind of, um, you know, recommendation. Joseph O'Neill, whenever he has a story in the New Yorker, I always think that it's excellent. I think he might be Irish, actually, if I'm not mistaken. I've never met him. There's a writer, I think it's, her name is Laura Vandenberg. Um, I think she writes very interesting short stories. I was, are you familiar with the Best American Short Stories anthology? And, and I actually was the um, guest editor this year. So I just read 120 short stories by by all different writers. Are there any characters in your books that where you'd like to kind of revisit? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, with my short stories, there's at least one story where I have thought of like, not writing a novel, but maybe writing another short story about the person who's featured in that one. And there's some, there are times when I think, I mean, again, to go back to like, like if if I'm like writing about like grouchy, white, educated Midwestern women, like at some point it's like, is this a different one or is this the same? You know, should I just, um, but usually, I mean, I, I think that I do write to kind of like entertain myself. And so the aspect of keeping things fresh and new makes me more interested in my own material. That you've got to want to be spending time with these people you're yeah, inviting and I suppose yeah, you get to a point yeah, where you're like, mm, yeah. I've spent enough time with them already yeah 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 exactly exactly do you ever reread books are you a comfort reader and are there any books that you're reaching for to be comforted by the familiar I'm mostly not a comfort reader and not a rereader. I do sometimes reread Alice Monroe's stories. And I always, I mean, partly because there is a similarity to her stories. Like sometimes I'll think, I know I loved that one, but like, which, which one was that about like, a, you know, a woman in rural Canada and, you know, the sort of secrets that she has. And so I'll reread it. And then I, I often will think like, oh my God, this is even better than I remembered, or this is more complex or, um, you know, like I see this in a different way. Like I read this 18 years ago and now that I have children myself, I see it really differently. So she's, kind of my the exception to the general rule for me that I'm just it's not it's not that I am unwilling to reread but usually I'm just very curious about books I haven't read yeah and have you ever given up on a book and then tried again um I just read um how to be both by Ali Smith and I tried to read it five years ago when it came out and I just wasn't in the right frame of mind or I was too immature I don't know but I thought oh I cannot cannot get on with this this isn't for me and I had to uh, read it again because I was on the um the Women's Prize podcast and we've had to sort of talk about all of the the books that won and I was really really dreading reading it because I remember not liking this and I loved it I'm not a completist I do stop it like I'll I mean so sometimes I'll stop within a few pages sometimes I'll even there there like there are times when I'll read like 150 pages of book and it it, it, I do feel like, yeah, I should just finish it, but then I still don't. I mean, so it's, it depends on the book. Um, it's funny. I had that experience with Raymond Carver where I read his short stories as a student and didn't like them. And then 
probably 10 years later, or maybe even just like five years later, when I myself was in graduate school, I taught them to undergrads. And because they're sort of deceptively simple or like they're not intimidating to students, even if they aren't big readers. And I, I was able to really see and appreciate the stories in a completely different way. And so like, I think that students were sort of confused and intimidated by Alice Monroe, but they were not confused and not intimidated by, by Rain, Raymond Carver. Um, the funny thing is there are, sometimes I'll be sent, especially like an early, copy of a book like before it's published I'll start reading it I don't like it and, and then like six months later it comes out and gets a ton of buzz and I think I must have missed something and I'll start I'll start reading it again and I'll feel exactly the way I felt before like I would say that is a more common experience where again it's just I mean taste is subjective so it doesn't it doesn't mean that I'm right and everyone else is wrong it just means that the book is not my cup of tea do you do what I do which is furiously whatsapp my closest bitchiest friends and say everyone loves this book I don't get it do you yeah you know oh, that's yeah. sort of like yeah. it's, yeah. it's the emperor's new clothes it's got to be the emperor's yeah. new clothes yeah, just, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. I know I feel, like, I feel like there would be like you know there's all these sort of texts and dms of among <laughs> among writers that are sort of like oh my god this is this is nonsense or like it is so overhyped and but but yeah there's there's not really any good reason for me to ever express that in a public way <laughs> huge thanks to curtis you can order rodham as an ebook or audiobook and have it in your eyes and ears on may the 19th or pre-order the hardback which is coming in july i'm daisy buchanan and i've been your book inspector thank you so much for joining me fellow spinecrackers you can find the podcast on social media at Ybooked. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at ybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this from R.L. Stein. People say, what advice do you have for people who want to be writers? I say, they don't really need advice. They know they want to be writers and they're going to do it. See you next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.